Boogie Down with reformed double girl Chase Masterson as she takes you inside Discovery every week on the all-new Star Trek podcast, Disco Nights. From the producers of Inglorious Trexperts, wherever you listen to the 430 movie. And keep looking at the stars. This is Ashley Miller. And this is Robert Meyer Burnett. This is Darren Docterman. And I am Mark A. Altman. And we are the, the Inglorious Trexperts. They used to say a man could fly, he'd have wings. But he did fly. He discovered he had to. Do you wish that the first Apollo mission hadn't reached the moon, or that we hadn't gone on to Mars and then to the nearest star? That's like saying you wish that. You still operated with scalpels and sewed your patients up with catgut like your great-great-great-great-grandfather used to. I'm in command. I could order this. But I'm not. Because Dr. McCoy is right in pointing out the enormous danger potential in any contact with life and intelligence as fantastically advanced as this. But I must point out that the possibilities, the potential for knowledge and advancement is equally great. Risk. Risk is our business. That's what the starship is all about. That's why we're aboard her. You may descend without prejudice. Do I hear a negative vote? Welcome back to the top 50 Star Trek episodes ever, 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 ever of ever. all time the top 50 star trek episodes if you're a fan you've already listened to the first well i was gonna say 25 but it was really 26 thanks or rob 27 or 28 and uh, we're gonna be counting it down so uh casey Kasem, tell us all about it it's part two of the inglorious trexperts top 50 star trek episodes of all time we offered the world order we we <laughs> and now let's continue with the countdown Thank you, Casey. And uh, again, for those of you who may not heard the first part, um, this, how did we come up with the list? What, what was our, um, our criteria? Well, all uh, existing Star Trek television series are eligible. However, the movies are not. Um, there'll be, a, hopefully we'll look at those at some future point in time. And we surveyed, uh, in addition to some notable Trek experts who haven't been on the show, uh, we, we, we included all our guests, uh, which uh, range from David Goodman, Jesse Alexander, Michael, Mike, uh, um, Mike Sussman, Lisa Klink, as well as some future guests who haven't appeared on the show yet, uh, but will. And uh, based on uh, the response, uh, we were able to sort of narrow it down based on the number of votes. Boy, it's more complicated than uh, the balloting in Florida, isn't it? Can we it? bring in Price Waterhouse right now? <laughs> I think we're going to need Price Waterhouse. I, right now, I think it was... It's La La Land! Some people may think the Ferengi figured this out. But um, it's La La Land. The winner is La La Land, number one Star Trek episode. Um, 
But uh, it's really exciting because uh, often growing up when Best of Trek did these countdowns, it was all the original, or uh, you would see these marathons, and uh, we attempted to um, take the entire you know 50-plus year history of Star Trek and distill it down to 50 great episodes. And to be honest, you're not going to find any episodes of Discovery on this list because um, it's still in its infancy, and you know we hope that after season two, we'll have some uh, episodes to include in next year's list. Absolutely. We, you know, and with the new series, Picard, but certainly, hopefully, uh, in season two of Discovery. Um, uh, you know, I think if we were doing the uh, uh, um, Star Trek The Next Generation uh, countdown uh, from its first season, it's unlikely that any of those episodes, well, uh, well maybe uh, one. Maybe. maybe. It's not on this list. Oh, well. See, Spoiler what do I know? I'm just being told what to say. What? What? No one's telling you what to say. Well, then why is this hand in my... Regards to Captain Dunsell. one one zero zero one zero zero one power mark. Yes. Oh, you're right. Yep. Okay, uh-huh. you know what? Forget what I said. I was going to scratch that. Let's just get on with you the countdown. You could have said no. Uh, therefore, going anyway. At number 40, it's Riker's trombone. Thank you. <laughs> That's what she said. That's what Vinuet said. Damn right she did. Okay, so I'm going to start us off. Uh, when last we left the countdown, we had just finished uh, number 26, This Side of Paradise, with the beautiful Jill Ireland, and um, terrific episode. Uh, we are now at episode 25, and this episode, number 25, is the Deep Space Nine episode, Rocks and Shawls. What are you doing? Following orders. Captain told us to scan the area for fresh water and vegetation. You know precisely what I mean. You're deliberately staying behind me, and I want to know why. Does this have anything to do with that unfortunate business between you and me last year? You tied me up and threatened to kill me. There were extenuating circumstances. It happened. So you can either stay in front of me or walk beside me. But I won't turn my back on you again. Cadet? There may be hope for you yet. What is it? I'm not sure, but... Now I'm sure. And I have to say, I think this is a very special episode. You know, one thing is it shows the power of shooting on location. This episode looks so good. Uh, obviously, they were on the cave sets, um, but there, there's this big plateau, uh, basically the uh, Deep Space Nine Cisco and Bashir and Dax and uh, Kalmini, uh, O'Brien, are stranded on a planet along with uh, a band of Jem'Hadar soldiers and their Vorta. Um, and what's so interesting is the Jem'Hadar are rapidly running out of Ketracel White, so they're sort of detoxing. They're, they're, they're you know, and and uh, it's it's a real problem for them. The Vorta is wounded and probably going to die. And uh, our guys, uh, Dax has been seriously injured. There may be uh, damage to the um, uh, symbiont, and um, uh, and it's a really wonderful. It's a beautiful looking episode because again, they're on location. Uh, for so many days, and I, I can't emphasize how much Star Trek benefits from these location shoots. Even an episode like on the original series, um, uh, which I don't particularly like, the Paradise Syndrome, the the, the mm-hmm. location filming hel- helps open that show up and give it a really beautiful 
look. And uh, by necessity, so many of these shows were studio lot bound. And uh, I think Rocks and Chills, it feels like an alien planet. Um, But it's a great episode uh, about to give us a little insight into the Jem'Hadar, the Vorta. Cisco is totally badass in this episode. Um, And, uh, you know, it's a great episode for the relationship between O'Brien and uh, Bashir as well. Just a really terrific um, episode set during the uh, the Dominion War arc and and a real a real winner for the uh, Deep Space Nine. Yeah, I mean, the action in this thing is just it's harrowing. Um, It's among the best that Star Trek has ever done, mainly because they weren't afraid to make it feel um, down and dirty and consequential. And I think the real achievement is that, you know, obviously our heroes win in the end. But the way we feel about that at the end, it, it, as the audience, is it, it's very complicated because we've empathized uh, with the Jem'Hadar. Um, we've embraced them. We've embraced the enemy as, as if not human, then, um, then something that's, that's sapient, um, beings that, that matter. They're not just targets uh, for our crew to shoot at. Um, they're not just, you know, the onrushing threat, the onrushing horde. Um, and so it's it's really it's a it's a difficult episode in a in a lot of ways. And that's what I think makes it so so powerful. I'll also add, so this is a funny story, he'll appreciate it. One of my friends uh, was a PA on the set, like when they were making this episode. And the poor guy, like, whatever was going on with the sun that day out in the heat, like he got afflicted with Bell's palsy for like three weeks. Oh my God. <laughs> but he soldiered on, man. He finished this episode. But you know, you just answered my question. Why didn't they shoot more episodes on location? Because it's yeah, hot. You can't control it. You <laughs> yeah. can't control the sun. It's hot. Uh, uh, you know, um, you, you know, you, the, the sun is moving. Clouds are, you know, from shot to shot. It's hard to match continuity. But uh, boy, what a great action sequence. And and just what a great insight into the relationship between the Jem'Hadar and the Vorta. And, um, you know, even though it wasn't Jeffrey Combs, I, what a terrific casting. That Vorta was great, just yep. slimy and manipulative and uh, a, wonder, a really wonderful insight and, and a great example, again, of that world building that Deep Space Nine did so well. Another another aspect of this is, is Star Trek has, for, for a show that is pretty much anti-war, there have been some great, the first season of, of the original series with Balance of Terror, which was sort of a riff on, on, on Run Silent, Run Deep, but it was also about both sides of the war. And this episode really anchors the Dominion conflict and turns it into something that's personal and understood. When you have starships attacking other starships and hundreds of people are dying in the the flash of an instant, this really brings home war. I mean, this is more akin to something like Platoon Mm -hmm. and what people, what the ground pounders are suffering, what the infantry suffers. And it really... There's some. There's many great war episodes of the Dominion War arc, but this is one of the very, very best. Yeah, and Avery Absolutely. Brooks is awesome. He's really good in that episode. I mean, they all are. I and mean, Bashir is is terrific too. I mean, and that they don't know whether or not to trust the the Jem'Hadar and the conversation they have with the Vorta, and just the the the, the you know the, the the side deals that everyone's making, and it's 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 a really great little episode. If the Vorta were to have died, would it have gone to uh, the Romulan afterlife of Vortavor? I don't know. Well, something to think about that from up, the people uh, at Getty. But you know what? I, <laughs> <laughs> the more you know. Um, so, number 24. Well, we have a tie, Mark. You're going to talk about one. I guess I'll talk about a tie. the other. A tie. Um, 
I'm going to talk about Caretaker. Yes, the Voyager pilot makes it into the top 25. I actually thought Caretaker was a, a beautifully made episode of Star Trek, as with all of the, with with Deep Space Nine as well. This builds on uh, uh, threads that were being built since the fourth season of Next Generation uh, with the Wounded, when we were introduced to the Cardassians for the very first time. You're dealing with... Uh, the Maquis, which we find out are are basically settlers who are mad that their their lands have been annexed or taken over. Um, you you meet Catherine Janeway, uh, the first female captain who leads one of our, our our Star Trek shows. I thought a great cast. I really enjoyed everybody. You meet Chakotay. You meet, of course, um, Tim Russ as Tuvok. He's undercover. Uh, these characters are immediately endearing, and and there's a lot of really interesting intrigue that spins out right from at the time what we'd seen already in Deep Space Nine all the way back to TNG. Um, once again, top notch production values. Even I recognized on the engineering deck of the Voyager that was the that was the motion picture that was the motion Enterprise, picture Enterprise. <laughs> engineering, um, engineering section, which I really liked. Uh, we we saw a new a new starship with the Intrepid class uh, that the Voyager is, um, and then of course. You meet a, a really interesting alien in the caretaker herself, 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 um, and of course blasted into the Delta Quadrant and really a great premise for a show. A starship is lost. It is cut off from its supply line and two crews that are sort of at each other's throats have to figure out a way to work together and survive. Uh, it's a classic literary conundrum and I don't think the first first season there's a few really great episodes actually in the first season of Voyager but this was a high watermark in that series how interesting would it have been if they'd actually kept that premise throughout the show right yeah well they i thought if they couldn't have gotten home and they had to do world building it was one cortege we bought his ships uh if they could never get home I think it would have been an, uh, they had to establish a federation beachhead in the delta quadrant that would have been interesting it could have been world building for seven years until Barkley was able to figure out a way to rescue them. Broccoli. You know, someone we don't talk a lot about when we talk about Great Birds of the Galaxy, but I, I really feel we need to give her a due is Jerry Taylor. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Jerry Taylor was such a big part of um, uh, Voyager in those early years. And I, I think that she brought something to it that we hadn't really seen Star Trek before, you know, and it was a, a female sensibility um, and, uh, you know, an emphasis again on character. And it, strangely enough, Voyager, more than probably any episode of Voyager, harkens back to the original show. You know, the, the scenes on the farm and the, 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 the form that the caretaker takes uh, in a malfunctioning alien or a dying alien. Sure. Uh, there's a lot that's evocative of the original series. Uh, production values are first rate. It's beautifully directed. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a really fine pilot. And I, I don't feel that first season of Voyager really ever lived up to it. Um, and it was the first Star Trek I ever worked on professionally. Let's see, that's great. See, and it launched so a whole go. network. You, you designed a bunch of stuff right. for that pilot. I, I designed a bunch of stuff. Uh, not a lot so of it was used, but I sure did a lot of drawings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's. Uh, I mean, and look, you can't overstate. I mean, now Star Trek shoots in Toronto, but all those shows were shot here in Hollywood on uh, the Paramount lot in Hollywood. Amazing There's sets. So much freaking history there. Yeah. Um, and every time you walk on the lot, even to this day, and I've been there hundreds of times now, it, you just get a chill from 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 walking on, uh, onto that lot. And I can't imagine, you know, working there and, and it was in great. those offices it was a lot that of fun. had been last seen in Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> that's, that's correct. Yeah. Actually, I think it was uh, last seen in the uh, in the last Tycoon, the De Niro movie. 
Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, and uh, you know, I was finally in the midst of uh, in the midst of Trek. I was literally glancing down at my iPad as we were saying this, and uh, on the Inglorious Trek Twitter feed, a, uh, a gentleman, Rody, who's a fan of the show, said, uh, "How many lights do you see?" Not even knowing we're recording. <laughs> One. I see five lights. <laughs> Could be four. Maybe three. probably five. Maybe I don't know. I don't know. Oh, I see a lot of lights. Ligots. How many do you think there are? <laughs> you tell me. I see David Warner and some really great makeup. Tell you what, Time Bandits. Why don't you tell me how many lights you want me to see? Chancellor Gordon. And we can uh, negotiate. That would have been a much shorter yeah. episode. Yeah, yeah you, you see how many lights you see. Eh, whatever you, I whatever still ain't boiled Tespa. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, you know, I, I, I just want to keep you here so we can have Ronnie Cox as Captain of the Enterprise. I'd love to see. <laughs> oh Ronnie my Cox God, the Adventures Captain of Captain Jellicoe. Oh, yeah. it would have been great. So good. Would have been. Would it would have been pretty great. Well, as Rob mentioned, this is a tie, and strangely enough, um, uh, a caretaker is tied with another terrific Star Trek pilot, emissary from Deep Space Nine. Hmm. Boy, this episode uh, begins with a uh, uh, you know just a bang, the Battle of Wolf three five nine, where we see. Um, uh, Cisco uh, survived the destruction of his ship. His wife is killed in the in the battle, so he's not uh, particularly uh, a happy man when he uh, sees Ca- Captain Picard, which is interesting because we hadn't really seen that kind of conflict between officers uh, before. And he's assigned to sort of this, uh, you know, if there's a dark center to the universe, <laughs> you know, the station that it's farthest from. Station that it's farthest from, the Deep Space Nine. Until one day. on the wrong end of the elementary <laughs> canal of the universe. And uh, we, we meet our, 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 our ensemble, truly ensemble of characters, Odo, Major Kira, uh, uh, Quark, uh, all great characters. You know, ironically, you know, the strength of Deep Space Nine would be in its supporting characters uh, with the addition later on of Garrick and uh, Andrew Robinson and Lita, Chase Masterson and, and Rom, uh, all these fabulous characters. Not right. the Space Knight, the um, Ferengi. And, and of course, right. Gul Dukat, who for all yeah. intents and purposes. But, he, you know, Gul Dukat's in this episode. It's, it's a really terrific episode, uh, beautifully directed by uh, David Carson. I think that cemented his um, uh, chance to direct Generations. Um, Again, the production design, seeing the promenade for the first time, the, the new sets, the whole feel of the station, uh, that it's a Cardassian station. You know, right. we brought a whole new aesthetic to the show. Yeah. Um, and you are really introduced to the Bajoran. We'd met the Bajorans with, via like Ensign Rowe, but to see how they... Uh, were then, again, utilized, picking up the threads. One of the great things about both Voyager and Caretaker is they're building on the universe, the canonical Star Trek mm-hmm. universe, and, and they're, they're taking threads that are woven throughout the shows. You know, imagine that. Yeah, Imagine right. that, imagine, that yeah. canonical fealty. You are, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, look, the, I love all of that stuff about <laughs> Emissary, but... I mean, but I, and I do. I mean, I love that you know it's it feels so enmeshed in everything that we've seen before. But I think the thing that makes emissary special and in some ways unique among the pilots, it's my favorite thing about it, is it is so emotional. It is so specifically about then Commander Cisco, eventually to be Captain Cisco, um, and his loss and the way that he processes that loss, uh, the way that he tries to put his life back together, the way that his son fits into that process of putting it back together, and how the the theme that is established um, by that loss and by that process is reflected in his job, you know, of bringing Bajor into the Federation, of helping them rebuild after the Cardassian occupation, um, of helping, 
of having some empathy and some insight into these people, you know, who have been through hell at the hands of the Cardassians who are angry, you know, and they want their pound of flesh. And that's going to be an issue for him. And by God, the first thing we learn about him is he is angry and he wants his pound of flesh. And that to me is just, it's so interesting. And his breakdown um, at the end of the episode, I mean, Avery Brooks is so great. He's unlike any captain we've seen, although I feel like on another episode, we talked about some of the similarities or at least some of the the tonal and thematic similarities between this and the cage, between Mm -hmm. Captain Pike and Commander Sisko that I think are very apt. But uh, to me, television isn't about the stuff that happens. Television is about the people it happens to. And what's great and special about Emissary is that we realize that, you know, even with all of the great ensemble and all the great supporting characters, this is a story that is happening to Benjamin Sisko. Um, and we care about that at the end of it. And uh, that, to me, is what earns its place on this list. I, I, uh, it's funny you say that because I think the points you, you, you mentioned are really well taken. And it's interesting to note people sort of lose sight of it watching it now. By the time we were watching it, it was right in the shadow of the L.A. riots. Right. And in fact, you know, which was all you know, about uh, uh, a city being ripped apart and having to come back together, you know, after something really, uh, you know, terrible has, you know, ripped apart the fabric of the community. And um, uh, this was very much on Michael Pillar's mind when he was rewriting that script. In fact, the LA rides happened when he was first working on the pilot and it, it reshaped the whole structure of that pilot and particularly the second and third acts. And I think it's really interesting to keep that in mind when you're watching it because you can really see in the best Star Trek tradition it being an allegory or a metaphor for something that was very contemporary at the time and and extremely well, definitely handled. And something else I think is really important is we're we're introduced to Bajoran spiritualism in in a big way and the prophets themselves, the, the, the Bajorans, their their religious beliefs are are based upon the wormhole aliens, but their religious beliefs are proven to be true. You know, their right. spiritual beliefs are actually mm-hmm. they they're entities that are worth believing in. These non corporeal, or maybe they're corporeal somewhere, but and their their view of time and space and how it's how it's very very different. But they're a legitimate, an alien race that becomes a force throughout the rest of Deep Space Nine. But the way that these aliens are intertwined with spirituality from the Bajoran side always interested me uh, because it, it, it didn't invalidate spirituality. Whereas mm. Star Trek is a very sort of... Humanistic. Humanistic, yeah. Very much a secular humanistic right. show where, where Deep Space Nine brought in a very, very huge dollop or dose of, of, of spiritualism that is not uh, then... Uh, sort of discarded or it's it's shown as being actually legitimate mm. because as we find the various orbs that the prophets have sort of bequeathed or they've found the Bajorans have found these are real devices and they found all the infinity stones they do they've got the infinity stones <laughs> and I I love the, oh, the later intertwining season two of course Deep Space Nine the, the three parter that begins season two oh, is all intertwined with barely missed our list Bajoran spirituality and and politics and it, they really do a lot about about you know it's akin to what what we went through during the entire Renaissance or Dark Ages. If we had done the top hundred episodes, it'd be safe to say that that Circle trilogy, I'm sure, would be on the list. But it's great, and and Frank Langella is magnificent. Yeah, as, oh uh, and and, and uh, Louise Fletcher. You know, I have to say, and by that the way, it repeats. Who comes back as a recurring she's, another she's in that great. that great bench of recurring Kai characters, and, and she is just uh, sensational. Um, you know, I I always was very struck. 
by those sets. Having been on the Deep Space Nine sets many times, you know, very rare two-level sets, mm-hmm. uh, gorgeously designed by Herman Zimmerman. Um, really uh, very impressive, very different look from the Next Generation sets. Uh, you know, they had a working... Um, you know, uh, lift, uh, elevator. It was It was really, uh, you really felt even more so than I think on the Next Generation sets that you were there on Deep Space Nine. And it struck me. And in fact, you know, I, I wrote a lot of the Deep Space Nine comics back in the day. And, um, you know, one of the favorite things I ever wrote was this this comic, Terok Noor, which was Deep Space Nine number zero. And they said, oh, you know, we want you to write the, the number zero edition. And, you know, so I did the origin of the space station. And, you know, sort of, uh, and I, I even to this day, I just, I love Love that comic book, um, and then later on did um, sort of the Diary of Anne Frank on the space station, which was pretty cool too, called Requiem. And I just I have a deep connection to that Deep Space Nine mythology, and really emissary. You know, you could tell it was going to be a special show, and then it struggled like a lot of the Star Trek shows did to find itself. Um, but by the end of the first season and into the second season, you really see what Deep Space Nine can be until the fifth season, where it just you know it explodes, you know, in the best of ways. Great stuff. Yeah. So, 23. Uh, number 23 is a uh, Next Generation episode. A mystery of unknown origin. Record is sick bay. The captain's hurt. Traps Picard in another world. My prisoner here. And another man's soul. This is not my life. Destined to spend eternity on a doomed planet. You simply cannot let this civilization die. Until fate... Cayman. Strikes a fatal blow. The captain is under attack. I'm losing him. On Star Trek, the next generation. A winner of the prestigious Yugo Award. It's a captain. Yugo. 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 The Yugoslavian car? The Yugo Award. They, you know, the, the writers and the director and the, the cast of this episode all won Yugos. Wow! Did they did they accept? They second, did. Second prize uh, was to you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The Hugo Award. Winners of the Hugo. Hugo Chavez Hugo. has an award. Hugo. Yes. <laughs> it's the Petro. So it's the inner light. <laughs> so the inner light. Uh, in the inner light. Otherwise known as the flute episode. The flute episode. Oh, Sarah likes to call it the flute episode. Twenty-three. Uh, Controversial. Captain Picard mm. is uh, is zapped with an energy ray that essentially like makes him experience uh, forty years of life of another show of another show uh, <laughs> in basically a minute, and he. It, the episode doesn't ever break the the point of view of that. It is all just about um, how he ages, the family that he makes, the life that he builds and he creates. Um, you know, he remembers the life that he had, but he accepts the one that he's in. Um, he experiences loss. You know, he we we run the sort of the gamut of human experience with him in this very compressed amount of time, uh, and it's it's incredibly affecting. And it's funny we called it the flute episode jay chataway wrote mm-hmm. like a beautiful score and that damned flute. i mean look that damn flute but the music you can does, buy it now you can buy on it now, star trek.com it it does you know it that sort of comes back as a as a theme it's like it feels like one of those things even though there's never like hey remember that time when you were a totally different person for like you know 40 years and shit right. uh which is you, kind of unfortunate it is unfortunate but I never felt after that point that um, that Patrick Stewart forgot that he mm-hmm. had had that experience. Um, I always felt like there is there is a bit of that um, in him. 
um, and that it was it was being expressed. Like not in any way that you go, oh, well, that was the moment when he did the the thing. Um, <laughs> but and maybe that was just the genius of Patrick Stewart that you know he could so um, internalize these experiences he's having as a character that then he's later kind of expressing those things in other performances, and you just mm-hmm. feel like he's living in a continuity. Uh, but that's how it felt to me. I love this episode. It's beautiful. I think it's also a beautiful episode, too. Didn't Patrick Stewart's son? Yeah, he play? was in it. Daniel Stewart. Yeah, Daniel Stewart was in the, in the episode. What, what I thought was so interesting about this episode is I think most of the people listening to this podcast are fans of Blade Runner. And when, when Rutger Hauer is dying in Blade Runner, he famously says, you know, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe and all of those moments will be lost in time, like tears in the rain. Well, what if those moments weren't lost? You know, and I, I, I always like this the idea that that this that this experience, whatever whatever civilization fi- finds this, like if, if if an alien race that was non-humanoid, if they had come across this probe, would their experience of the Resican's life's this last bit, would they see themselves as the aliens that mm. they were on this planet? That's interesting. You know, and 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 I, it was always interesting that that the idea conveyed is that the civilization existed. This was a noble civilization. This was a good group of people, and the their extinction was just beyond their ability to prevent or to to preserve themselves. And I always thought it was a beautiful way. Like here, here is the memory of this civilization will endure, and endures. Indeed, through Captain Picard, and and it's it was such a great heady sci-fi concept that um, I think that's why it resonates with people so many for for so long because it's really about about everyone's death, not just the death of a civilization, but every individual. Yes, I, I'll go one a little further, and it's a little bit of a a negative thought. Oh boy, believe it or not. So brace yourselves. Consider um, ourselves braced. I'm so braced. <laughs> I enjoyed this episode so much that it made me not enjoy going back to the Enterprise mm. in surrounding episodes. Um, it 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 made me think, well, geez, they could they they could make this other uh, group of people so interesting. Why can't they make our characters this interesting? Yeah. So that that was a little bit of a sort of a negative, uh, you know, lashback for me. But uh, I think it's a it's a very it's a very uh, moving and entertaining episode, and of course Stewart is amazing in it. Yeah, you know uh, Rob said something at the beginning where he said uh, I think a lot of people would be disappointed it's not higher. Um, I think it's um, a remarkable science fiction premise from Morgan Goodell. Execution wise, I don't think it's flawless as some people seem to think. Uh, I know you know I don't love the direction, the things about it I don't love, but it, it's a great. It, it lives right where great science fiction should live. Mm-hmm. And I understand the resonance and the melancholy, and, and it, it, it was very off-concept. And for a lot of um, a show that often embraced sort of high-concept sci-fi that really never went anywhere, that had no emotional punch to it, right. you know, that was sort of, you know, high-concept sci-fi for the sake of high-concept sci-fi, this was a show that used science fiction to tell a very emotional and heartfelt story. And for that, it should be commended. And I believe we just did. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. At number 23. And now, let's count back to 22. Oh, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> number 22 brings us to perhaps the most celebrated episode when anyone ever talks of the original Star Trek uh, telling a morality tale. This way to Eden. No. That, that'd the be other. your last battlefield. You can, you know, keep shouting out titles. But we can. We can. You want but, us to? But the Omega shouldn't. Glory. Yes, no. Piece of the it, action. What? 
<laughs> it's an Pe- allegory for gangsters. Peas, gangsters are peas of the action. Peas um, of the action. It is, it is the devil in the dark. Uh, we find our uh, crew being called to uh, Janus 6, uh, which is a uh, Pergeum mining facility, I believe. And uh, there are uh, people disappearing every day. Some Schmitter. Schmitter was burnt Where to a crisp. Schmitter go? I love the way he said that. <laughs> He's a Schmitter. Schmitter. <laughs> Schmitter. Burnt to, like the others. Rafe Edelman. Burnt to a crisp. <laughs> and and delicious. Um, it's, uh, it, <laughs> it's very fun uh, because, you know, it's, it's the old monster story uh, about something lurking in the catacombs. But as we learn during the episode, it's so much more than we originally thought. And it's a wonderful tale about how basically Kirk and Spock uncover the secret. What a great monster, though. It's a great I mean, monster because it's completely kid, inhuman. Totally inhuman. When I was a little kid, I loved it because the, this monster was bad, bad, bad. I mean, the way it would burn human beings to a crisp and just leave this smoking, basically a smoking char- charcoal yeah. outline behind. Yeah. Poor Schmitter. I mean, when you're a kid, when you're a kid, plus there's a great matte painting yeah. of the, the tunnel, the Janus 6 mining colony, and really a lot of great world building here. Oh, he was the original Yoda too. No kill eye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, pain, back, suffering. Back, back when I was a kid watching these episodes, um, we had a local sort of frozen pizza called uh, Gino's, and it looked just like the Horda. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so and you couldn't eat it anymore. So yeah, I, I you know, no eat eye. So it, it was <laughs> it was uh, it was fun. But I I, I love the episode. Uh, of course the. The Horda itself was played by uh, this actor and stuntman, Janos Prochaska, who also- Not to be confused with Jessica Von Puttermaker. <laughs> Jessica Von Puttermaker. Uh, look on our 430 movie uh, site for a t-shirt uh, with the new uh, adventures of Jessica Von Puttermaker. Um, it's- uh, Shameful. Comic book coming- Janos Prochaska uh, did a lot of stuff for Outer Limits. Uh, I think he I think he was uh, in a couple Twilight Zones in you know, various monster suits. Um, but he came up with the idea of basically wearing this carpet on roller skates, and you know pushed himself around on this uh, on this uh, rolling platform, and it looks so great, and it looks like something completely alien. But the story is even more interesting than that because what Darren says is exactly true. Gene Roddenberry saw it and reacted like a little kid, and he calls Gene Coon in. Gene Coon sees it. Writes a whole episode in like twenty four right. hours right. based on the carpet he just saw in right. Gene's office. It's, I mean, this is the genius of Star Trek, right? I mean, Gene, Gene Coon Gene sees Coon. this walking carpet or with rolling carpet. <laughs> Someone get this rolling carpet out of my way. And, and, and says, "I know just what to do with this." And it he comes people. up with one of the great hours of yeah. television ever. I mean, it's it, you know, and and. In a, in a world, you look at all those 50s movies where we're afraid of the aliens. They're coming to get us. They're coming to kill us. You know, for a half hour of this episode, it's, you know, destroying, mon- you know, miners like Schmitter with acid, <laughs> you know, like like the aliens, right? It, and yeah. then suddenly we find out it's a mother. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it, it protecting her eggs. I mean, that, I mean, I think that's why Star Trek has stayed with us all these years. And we also have one of the few red shirts with two stripes, Lieutenant Commander Giotto. <laughs> So there you go. You know, another thing that this episode always had, 
and it, 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 Star Trek never one of the great unsung things about Star Trek is sound design. Mm. Now it, there was always a combination of 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 library sound effects that they were remixed or reused in a different way. I don't think there was actually was there a Ben Burt of Star Trek that was going around? There was, and he just passed away last year. Oh well, then there you go. Um, um, I'm I, sure Ray Mindman could tell you his Rafe, name. You know what? I <laughs> the bet he would. Master slash Organian. But I, you know, the 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 sound of the Horda whether it's tunneling through rock or whether it's just skirting along the ground, was uh, there was just something about that sound that was so perfect. Should we take a second, because we have not talked, to, and he just passed away. Yeah. Douglas Grindstaff. Douglas Grindstaff, yes. You know, and he, it, two months ago, a month ago. It was a little longer than that, yeah, I think. Yeah, and, and, and uh, what, a, what an amazing, and this Brilliant. is before Pro Tools, before, you know, Ben Burt knocking on sound, on, on electrical cables, you right. know, I mean, what he was able to do in the 60s, in an analog world, yeah, extraordinary, extraordinary, and and he he got uh, he got sounds from you know the strangest sources, um, and you can hear a little bit of uh, that work in the cage, of course, where a lot of the sound effects of like uh, those floating leaves, for example, are generated from a an organ, just sort of. T- not, not like that, oh, Ashley. Oh. A like a like a uh, you know an oh, organ that, oh, that you with a you keyboard. Play. Okay, my goodness. One of the great sounds ever <laughs> in the cage is when Pike slams himself against the translucent. Boom! I love that so much. <laughs> it's great. It's so great. It's great. So great. But yeah, the, that that is absolutely. He didn't work on the cage, by the way. Oh, right. Well, no. but that so. is that is absolutely one of the you know wonderful aspects of Star Trek that is almost completely ignored. It's the, the soundscape of the Federation. Because uh, people take it for granted. The same way people think actors show up on set and make up their words. Right. They think these are the sounds on the set. They don't realize people spend days, weeks. It's amazing. <sighs> the chirp of the communicator when you flip it open is so ingrained in your mind that people just make that sound when the computer yeah, yeah. communicator doesn't even make that sound. It's just, you know, you fill in. Right. And uh, you know, I have I have the 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 two tones on my uh, on my phone, and it's amazing how much that cuts through noise, and you can hear it immediately, mm. because apparently he knew something about those pitches being able to cut through noise. You know who got it though? Apparently, I, you know, I was very lucky because I I didn't know much about the sound of of, of Star Trek, and after uh, right as um, Fifty Year Mission was coming out, my book. Audible called me and they said, you know, we'd like to do something on the sound of Star Trek for um, uh, Audible. And uh, would you, you know, be able to do something? So I tracked down Douglas Grindstaff, mm-hmm. who was very, he wasn't doing great at the time, right. and talked to him for quite a while. And it was really eye opening or ear opening, as the case right. may be. And, uh, but one thing he said is Gene got it immediately when he started auditioning sounds right. for Gene Roddenberry. Gene was like a kid in a candy store. He got the fact that like what Doug was doing was amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, you you definitely, you know, hear that in Devil in the Dark. It's a great example of, of, of that. But, uh, you know, for all three seasons, uh, you know, these iconic sounds, the right. communicator, the tricorder, the turbo sick lift. bay, the yeah. turbo lift, the bridge, the doors, the bridge. Yeah. And how many other shows have made that mistake where they don't have this immersive sound field like the original bridge did you felt like you were on a spaceship and it elevates the quality of the sets look how much the sound does for that absolutely well and you know ben bird has talked about this a lot that doug grindstaff is one of his heroes along with treg brown from warner brothers cartoons um and these are these were all pioneers in the sound 
uh, world that uh, helped develop, you know, what we have today. It's amazing. Yeah, and we could go on and on for Ben Bird. I mean, I, I, I have to say, uh, again, it was. I remember I was at a mix for Star Trek 2009, and Ben Burt was there, and it was just extraordinary to watch him work. Yeah. You know, just incredible. And he's a huge Star Trek fan. we got to try and get him on the show. We should, absolutely. There's so many people. That's a great thing. People say, how long are you guys going to go with the show? And it's like, we could go for a long, I mean, you know, we're not going to run out of stuff for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Well, I don't think anybody's ever thought I would shut up at any time in the near future. So We'd hoped, but. Right, I know. We tried. <laughs> but then we're disappointed. <laughs> so let's continue with the countdown, shall we? Sure, number 21. Well, this one goes out to Discovery producer Heather Caden. <laughs> uh, he can't help himself, can he? The he first can't. Klingon episode yes. ever in Star Trek history. Uh, Errand of Mercy from the first season of Star Trek. This introduced us to the Klingons that were famously created as the Soviets during the Cold War, maybe later on identified with the Chinese. But in this in this uh, episode, we have the planet Organia that is... By all appearances, it's a you know basically a medieval planet, very simple planet with a a nice, very agreeable uh, local population, and it has become almost a, too agreeable. Too agreeable, and it's become a focal point of the conflict between the Klingon Empire and the United Federation of Planets, which was yet to be called the United Federation of Planets in the series. But let's go with it. Um, and in the show, the Klingons have beamed down and basically taken over. Um, and and Kirk and Spock are left to go undercover to sort of get the Organians to come to their side and and join the fight and and get get in for the big win. And not all is what it seems. And it seems that the Klingons are starting to execute the local population, and Kirk and Spock basically start a guerrilla war against the Klingon uh, governorship, uh, the stewardship of this of this of this planet. And what's so wonderful about this? is John Colicos as core. Um, what a character, what a performance. He embodies everything that we have later we later see, you know, over 50 years later to be be closely identified with the Klingons. First of all, he's smart. He's cunning. He has a sense of humor. He shows that when Kirk's uh, his his undercover name is Barona and 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 Kirk My Barona Kirk undercover. <laughs> Kirk undercover. Uh, Barona is not yet revealed to be James T. Kirk. Uh, they have a friendship. They develop this mutual respect, and it's it, it's such just you just love these guys, and it it shows that there are no villains in Star Trek. There are only antagonists, and these guys are great antagonists. And then at the end, there is this great kicker that as a kid. Every time I watched a repeat of this episode, the end of this episode always got to me. I loved the end because even though I knew it was coming, I always didn't see it coming. Because when you're watching the conflict between the Klingons and Kirk and Spock, you, you forget. You right. forget who the Organians are. And when it happens, uh, you know, here, here the, the, the Kirk and, and, and Kor are ready to do battle. The Klingon fleet and the Federation fleet have assembled above the skies of Organia, and we are ready to do battle, and they want to do battle. Kirk wants to fight. Yeah. He wants to fight with the Klingons, and then the Organians are revealed to be non-corporeal creatures that are infinitely powerful. And they're like, you know what? Uh, you guys aren't going to fight. Then they put a stop to everything, and both both the Klingons and the Federation are revealed to be warmongers in some way because they wanted to fight. And the Organians knew it, and they're like, not on our watch. 
And it's such a great science fiction story. Great introduction to the Klingons. Great twist. Great performances. Well, this is one of those Shatter's never been better. I like to point to when uh, when people talk about um, Star Trek, particularly in the context of of modern Trek, and by that I even go back to the Next Generation about how oh, you know, they're all about the peace and love and all that shit. No. And I'm like, no, no, not not really. Sometimes, maybe, but there was a hell of a lot less peace, love, and understanding back then than you yeah. might think. It's um, about humanity. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And you know, we're not perfect and we do get pissed and you know we do kind of lose control and sometimes we need the adult to what say what gives you the right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but you know they, of course you have to say the organians are kind of like giant intergalactic dicks because they kind of let it get to this point in the first place but that's neither here nor there well you know uh, what organians a dick rafe needleman because if he only we had him here we want as an rafe actual organian on this show Right, so we got to get him on the show. Um, You're gonna have to come down here, here Rafe. <laughs> We're like, trying. Just you've, for our you've audience, managed to stump everyone else. We are, are trying but to get like a hold of Rafe Needleman. Trivia master, he's you not keep responding to our hails. One of the, but one of the great things about uh, about Aaron of Mercy is that it's kind of the impetus for canon. Because yes. later on in Trouble with Tribbles, you hear about the Organian Peace Treaty. Mm-hmm. Yep. This is something in an earlier episode that has influenced what's happening now. Yep. And how awesome is that? It's awesome. Blew my mind. Yeah. And I think we would be remiss if we did not point out something about Core, uh, which is that Core- uh, He's awesome. He is awesome. <laughs> he is so awesome that he reappears- um, decades later on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, yes, when right. he reprises his role on Blood Oath uh, with Kang and Koloth, who are also uh, Klingons from the original series who came back. And, you know, and because they were on our side, because they were friends of Jadzia Dax, you know, we got to see them in action from the point of view of being the protagonist uh, of our story. Um, and they're just fantastic, larger-than-life Shakespearean characters, but in this great, accessible way, and Colicos is just as great uh, in Deep Space Nine as he is in the original series. Um, it just goes to show like how interesting and complex uh, the Klingons are and how, how they have always been that way, with the possible exception of Christopher Lloyd. And I, <laughs> I got to give a shout-out to um, Manny Cotto, who brought the Organians back in Observer Effect and Enterprise. I mean, I don't love the episode, but I think it was a it was a great you know way to you know honor this sort of seminal part of Trek history. Well, another thing you just mentioned about Star Trek canon, I think David Gerald, there's a there's a um, a mention of the Organians. Part of the peace treaty is that who you you are able to claim a planet if you can best develop the resources right. of the planet that benefits the people already living there right. that benefits the population so it shows that the the klingons are not just these monstrous evil beings that they might have something to offer depending on right. what kind of a civilization cool sorts. you, you and run though the klingons across. are brutal and aggressive they are most efficient <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's another and thing i mean cool you 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 because that performs because core is such an interesting as governor of orcania the provisional governor of orcania or whatever you believe that these guys they have a chance to win like they're not they just they have these, an empire yeah they yeah. they're, they're <laughs> the spacefaring empire that's older than ours and i uh, older than earth and uh, you know uh, it, it was a great way, a great starting point for the Klingons and their or their beloved 52 years later. I'm just looking on IMDb. It gets an 8.3. Well, 8.3. Good to know. 8.1. Uh, I guess. 
<laughs> okay. Let's keep just, going. I was just curious. All right. So number 20 is a personal favorite of mine. It's an original series episode. Is called... it a favorite of yours or a favorite of ours? It's a favorite of uh, all of us. About, okay. You know, it's all about of us, thing. guys. It's a, it's a piece of the action. You calling me a babe? I'm calling you a babe. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it's funny because I happen to have the Star Trek photo novel number eight, 300 full-color authentic scenes, PC action. Is it brought and to you by Bang Bang? It, it, the, the biggest little <laughs> the handgun in the world. sweetest little automatic in the world. <laughs> and, and I have a message. It's, it, in this book, it actually has an introduction by Bella Oxmix. Really? It does. From I the office him. of the president of Sigma Iosha 2. Nice. Dear Mandela, that was the people that published the photo novel. I have this. Problem. I just had a look at your photo novel about what happened up here on Sigma Iosha 2 with your fed guys. The book was real nice. I especially liked all the shots of me and my boys. It was great remembering the old days, but the present ain't bad either. The Federation has sent us a whole bunch of your history books, and so we've made a lot of changes. You know we Iosians are pretty adaptable. Right now, bobby socks are the rage among our teenagers, and I'm sporting a terrific crew cut. When that Kirk guy first proposed the new arrangement, you'll remember that I was the first to agree. Hey, I'm no dummy. You don't cross a guy who has that kind of muscle backing him up. I read a book about your government, and I really enjoyed it, especially the part about having a president. So I held an election myself. <laughs> <laughs> Modesty prevents me from telling you what a landslide I won. <laughs> I'm considering holding another one next year, and I'm even thinking about having an opponent this time. <laughs> oh, oh, by the way, I made JoJo Krakow vice president. Who wrote this? Rafe Needleman? It's worked out great. I've never heard a word about him since. Things are looking good yet. No wars, no inflation, no unemployment. There's some crime, but you can only teach old dogs new tricks. Wow. As for me personally, I've given up the ways of misspent youth. No more pool playing. Now I mostly spend my leisure time water skiing and with my family. Yeah, I got married. Nice girl, too. <laughs> says, we've been working on the translator thing. The feds left, and my boys say they'll figure it out in a few more years, and then we'll be able to travel all over the galaxy. I myself am looking forward to coming down to your Earth. I particularly am interested in visiting a place called Las Vegas. Sounds like my kind of town. Well, that's about it. Good luck to you, and if you ever need a bunch of double-breasted suits, just give me a call. Regards, Bella Oxmix. And that's why I would have loved to see them come back looking for a piece of our action. <laughs> Look, the PC action is just freaking fun. Yeah. It is, you know, one of the, the great comedy episodes. It sometimes gets a little short shrift because people always talk about tribbles, which is great. But PC Action is freaking funny. It has that fabulous exchange between Kirk and Spock when he's trying to drive the car. Mm -hmm. You're an excellent Starship <laughs> captain, but as a taxi driver, you leave a lot to be desired. Uh, I mean, when Kirk has to put on airs as the gangster, you know, and, and, and at the same time communicate with Scotty. You got all that, uh, Scotty. Fizzbin. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I would argue it's a better, it's a much better fish out of water story than Star Trek Four, really. Oh, I'll totally <laughs> you know, agree with you, know, you there. Uh, you know, Spock trying to fit in. Uh, you know, and when he starts to play along, I mean, it's just right. It's <laughs> it's so much fun. I mean, well, the comedy is great. The action is great. Um, they use the back lot really well. You know, uh, it's, it's fun, but it doesn't make fun of our characters. Never. The Jeopardy That's is real. What's, yeah, it yeah. always kept in high mud, in 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 in, in tribbles and PC action. They they never wink at the audience. Yep. The Jeopardy is always real, and never more so than PC action. You know, I'm gonna put a bag over your head. You know, I mean, <laughs> the act outs are like you know. Uh, you know, you, you, you're going to give us what we want, you know, when we want those fancy heaters. I mean, Kirk is in genuine jeopardy. Yeah. And well, it's what great, great comedy is really, situational comedy has always been my favorite. When 
you know, Kirk, Spock, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, uh, they end up in, in, in Scotty in, in situations that are, like you said, have genuine peril, but they don't make fun or belittle our characters. Mm-hmm. The humor comes from how do our characters deal with this ridiculous situation that is a real situation and a really heady science fiction concept. I mean, we, it, it's a great example of what could go horribly wrong and why the prime directive exists. Right. This mm-hmm. is this is a great example of when the prime directive goes awry, horribly wrong. What could what could happen when when a, when a, a highly intelligent civilization that is very uh, let's 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 take what we've learned and, and and put it to good use transforms their entire culture and it is horrifying. That that's what they the Chicago mobs yeah. of the 20s. The USS Horizon left this one book. Good job, Horizon. Yeah, yeah more cracks about the book. <laughs> Why couldn't it have been the 50 year mission? I could have sold more copies. <laughs> right. I mean, it's but it's a really heady sci-fi concept that still is is put into a, a great humorous context. And it commits to the bit. You yes. know, and and that's something that the original series, I think, to its credit, did consistently. It established the rules of these worlds. It established the problems that emerged from the rules that they had created. And the solutions always came out of those rules. The solutions never really had anything to do with teching the tech, yeah. uh, you know, or any of the sort of the pseudo sci-fi um, that could become a crutch at times on the uh, the later Star Trek series. Plus, I think it's the most I've ever paid for action figures because uh, Playmates <laughs> came out with uh, Kirk and Spock piece of the action gangster action figures, and I could not. I guess they were KB toy and hobby exclusive. Yeah, I could not find them, so I finally had to break down at a convention. You know what? I wish you'd have called me. I have a case of them. Really? I oh, have I need a my case back. of them. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I want to leave a couple in the box. Maybe I can get some from you, and then I can take them out, and put them on the show. Maybe we could reach some kind of uh, you know deal. Oh, that sounds good. I'll talk to you offline. This is great. I, I would like to have more because you know my my son keeps taking all my Star Trek action figures. Before I'm done, I'm not gonna have none left. Got to got to nip that in the bud. I know it's really it's not cool. Not uh, cool. <laughs> you heard Wait. it here first, kids. <laughs> I know. I mean, just stick with the James Bond. I mean, it was hard enough to give those up. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, great, great, a, a great episode, fun episode, and and you know we talked about this before, but Ron Moore had talked about for the 25th anniversary of Deep Space Nine doing an episode where they went back to Sigma Iosha two, uh, and now everybody was dressing up like Captain Kirk and Mister Spock, right? And it would have been sort of a comment on the whole franchise, and and they would have been imitating the original Voyage of the Emperor. And I'm glad that they didn't do that. Yeah, it's a cute idea, and that when you kick it around, you talk about it for three seconds, but it, it probably would not have been a great. It would have been too meta, you know. And it would have um, cost us trials and tribulations. And it would have cost us trials and tribulations. That's that's for sure. Anyway, great episode. Love it. it, it it's one of those episodes. It, 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 while it may not be in our top ten, it's probably one of my desert island episodes mm-hmm. because I can just watch it again and again. I agree. Yep. Now we're moving on in the countdown to number nineteen. Number 19 is sort of a 19A and a 19B. It's uh, one of the seminal two-parters from Deep Space Nine in Purgatory Shadow by Inferno's Light, which is a it's a part of the whole Dominion War arc of the show. It's uh, it's really a direct follow-up to the incredible two-parter, Improbable Cause, The Die is Cast, which, for my money, was the episode that said, oh, crap, Deep Space Nine is definitely here to play. They knew this day would come. Once you back here in one piece, they thought they would be prepared for it. They are coming right at us. Try to shake us loose. They were wrong. There are at least 50 Dominion ships headed our way. Right now, there's no way we can beat the Dominion. Weapons ready. The wormhole's opening. The Dominion. They're coming. God help us all. 
on the next Star Trek Deep Space Nine. In this, in this pair of episodes, this is where the Dominion War really, truly kicks off. This is when the Jem'Hadar comes streaming through the wormhole. Um, this is when we find out that the changelings are everywhere. And not only are they everywhere, they are in our cast. Um, you know, we, uh, we go to, uh, we, we basically go with Worf and Bashir, and we wind up on this planet where we're prisoners of war, and we discover sitting among, like, the prisoners of war, um, we find that that uh, that the real Dr. Bashir has been taken while there's a changeling Dr. Bashir back on the station. And has been for a couple of episodes. And has been for, yeah, and mm-hmm. you go back and you look at those episodes and you know, he knew. I mean, they knew that that's exactly like what they were doing. And it just, it makes it makes it so fascinating. Like they could pinpoint the the, the moment that, that he was taken. That and he Martok. Was yes, and General Martok, yeah. who turns into another great Klingon Well, it's character. actually, and it's Garrick uh, right. in that episode. You're right. And, I, it's phenomenal. And he you finds know. a Nobrin Tain. Well, and look at that dynamic we hadn't really seen, Worf and Garrick together. Right. It was just great. There's so much to be mined from that. And then, of course, you find out a lot about Garrick in terms of his mentor, Paul Dooley, as a uh, Nobrin Tain. And, uh, and um, he dies in that episode. And, yes, he and does. And then, um, you know, Worf, it's a great episode for Worf because he has these put in these sort of pit competitions with the with the Jem'Hadar, and he just stands up. And, and at the, by the end, the Jem'Hadar finally sort of honors Worf by, like, I'm not going to kill him. Yeah, right. Uh, because this guy is a, a true warrior. It, and it does so much for Worf. It does more for Worf than seven seasons of Next Gen. I He's love right. Next Generation. But uh, it, it, it's, it's really great. No, I, and also again, those I remember it was the first time, sort of in modern, well, at least in '90s television, that I was shocked by something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you find out that Bashir has been a changeling, you know, it was <laughs> for episodes. You're like, because yeah. this was very non-Star Trek. You know, it was in terms of, of also, it, it, you said Deep Space Nine has come to play. It's also here to stay because yes. it was the first time there, there the idea of serialized storytelling. Had kicked into high gear. Mm. I mean, they were now they were now playing the long game. Yep. And and that was at the time. Now it seems well, that's what TV shows do. But it was really surprising, especially for a Star Trek show. I remember. I, I think that this two parter, this and Chain of Command are my favorite Star Trek modern Star Trek two parters. They really are. Um, and this is talk about adult and really interesting and fascinating and. All the different characters, all the, the you see the both the supporting cast, the guest cast, and the principal cast, all turning in top notch performances in this episode, and it's just great television. Yep. Yeah, it's it's you know the one thing we didn't talk about was of course how great Gal Dukat is because he's really upset that his daughter is carrying out a relationship or, or he wants to carry out a relationship with Garrick, you know, and then he he blames Major Kira for for not keeping them apart. And he says there will be consequences. And, of course, at the end of the episode, we find out what those consequences are. You know, he, uh, when the Jem'Hardar fleet comes streaming through the wormhole, they're not, uh, you know, engaging the Federation Klingon fleet. They're heading to Cardassia for a new alliance. That's I mean, right. it's this World War II kind of like every theater, you know, the Cardassian front, the Romulans are involved, the Klingons are involved. I mean, it's a great, great war arc. And this is the first time we see, oh, my God, they're teaming up with the Cardassians. And it's Dukat's attempt you know, to achieve power and restore the great, make Cardassia great again. You know, right. I mean, right. it's remarkable. And it's you know the, the thing that's that's great on a character level about that, just as as storytelling is, it's such a perfect mirror for discovering that Doctor Bashir is a changeling. Because this episode is really about how people aren't what you expect them to be. Just as Worf isn't what the Jem'Hadar expected, um, 
you know, we find that that Bashir, who's been living among us, kind of telling us one thing really means us harm. Um, Dukat, who we've been kind of growing fond of and developing an empathy for, um, really turns out to be, um, you know, the enemy. Uh, and it just and the great thing about it is that it sets us up for surprise after surprise, which Star Trek hasn't always been good at surprising us. That hasn't really been its bag. But um, this episode, these two episodes do it in spades. Well, it's interesting if you go back to Discovery also tried to play that card in the first season of Discovery by not telling us who people were for real. It was, But I don't think it was as effective because it was telegraphed so early on and we kind of knew where I think Discovery, the first season, would have been helped with this kind of set up and payoff. See, that's a good point because I think whatever you think of Discovery, whether you love it or not, I don't think anyone would say they were particularly surprised by the Vok uh, payoff or the fact that Jason Isaacs was from the Mirror Universe. I, both of them were uh, telegraphed, you know, uh, you know, very early on. It was very easy to sort of, d- d- you know, realize that. Whereas, you know, here, it really comes as a shock. They earn that, oh my God, what's Dr. Bashir to say? <gasps> Dr. Bashir's a changeling right, back on right. That's crazy. And and it's just so great to see. Um, uh, and it's the second time they pulled that because of course Gowron turns out to be right. a, a changeling. And and both times it's like shocking. And uh, and then I, I just can't say enough good things about J.G. Hertzler as Martok. We talk oh. about all these great supporting characters. One of the great Klingons in the history of the franchise. And yep. then also just a great, great performance. We talk about how weak the Vulcan and Romulan performances are. are in every iteration of Star Trek since the original, boy, the Klingons, they they could cast those Klingons. Yeah. They ate up the scenery, and they were amazing. Robert O'Reilly, J.G. Hertzler, these guys were fantastic. Tony Todd. Tony Todd, sensational. All right, all right. I'm going to take number 18, It's uh, and I'm also going to try and go a little faster because we're we're pushing up against the envelope here. You know what? People aren't at work. It's New Year's week. That's right. People are off. They can sit and listen. And if we go, you know what? This could be show. I'm going to say show. That's a big Berlin Alexander plots. Good. Eight hours. We're going eight hours with this. <laughs> and our engineer just died. Quit. <laughs> <laughs> He's shaking his head. You know what? I, I can't hear these guys go on much longer. Let's go to number 18 from The Next Generation, season two, I believe. Q Who. You're correct, sir. Who? 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 What? The re- it's uh, basically uh, the return of Q, everyone's favorite uh, Trelane uh, uh, impersonator. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> hey, Peter David wrote a book. Uh, that Good for him. Um, <laughs> um, he wrote many books. Well, he wrote Q, Q, Q squared. Q comes to basically wipe that smug-looking uh, face off of Riker, basically, and, uh, and show the Earthlings what waits for them out there in space. And Off of Riker? Riker has the smug look. Oh, okay. Picard I, I, doesn't. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I, was, I was confused. But uh, it's it's really fun, and it's scary, and it's creepy, and you see uh, some very fun interplay between Guinan and, uh, and Q, and some backstory that I, you know... Has anyone ever developed in a in a novel the backstory of uh, Q and and Guinan? Um, it's really it's a, it's a nice fiction. tease, and it's it 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 just sort of throws it out there yeah. like they've dealt with each other before. Yeah, yeah. And she does like that hand move. the yeah. hand thing, the hand the thing, hand you know the, the magical hand. <laughs> it's it's great, and and you know I, I speak, you know what's great in by Inferno's light there was the Breen. I thought Carrie Fisher was going to be under the helmet. Right. Everyone takes the. <laughs> <Never mind. laughs> yeah. 
Go ahead. We're on Q who now. My goodness. Q who? Yes. Q U. Um, and <laughs> with a you know, with a a snap of Q's fingers, the Enterprise D is hurled turns to dust into a new part of the galaxy, and we meet for the first time the Borg. And they are so freaking scary. They're freaking scary, scarier than ever and ever again, actually, um, because they can't be reasoned with. They can't be talked with. They can't be you know, convinced to quit being Borg. It's all very frightening because you have no way to deal with them. That's right. And they are, you know, the, the space zombies of the stratosphere. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they basically kicked the crap out of the out of the uh, enterprise they uh, kill enterprise they pull a, a they, they pull a core sample yeah. out of the right. out of the primary hull they and it's people. it's awesome and you know picard's sitting there like um uh uh what are we gonna do <laughs> well that last scene between him and q i mean when when they're when they're trying to escape you know, when he finally, like, says, like, we've got nothing, when he admits it, like, you believe it. Yeah. You know, and you don't blame him for it. Right. You just, you see him now being a good captain and saying, I understand the limits of my capabilities, and I understand that I am about to lose everything, and I have one thing, and that's you. Right. And in this case, I'm going to give you what I want. And he is so far removed from the guy who surrendered to the freaking, like, the, I guess, the, the space lights in, like, in uh, Encounter at Farpoint. Yeah. Uh, we surrender inside the first twenty minutes of encounter at Farpoint. Well, that, that, yeah, you know, absolutely. Because you could see the advantages of Captain Picard, you know, uh, uh, as opposed to Kirk in this particular situation. Because Kirk would never beg Q to help. He would. He would fight. He'd rather see the whole ship blow up. Yeah. He would fight. And then, and let, let's play dead and lure them in. You know, it's like Picard was like, "Oh, no, get well, me out of here! I don't know. We can't. We're not prepared." Mark, Mark, the difference is that Kirk would have convinced. Um, Q in Encounter at Farpoint that humans were worthwhile. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) You know, another, another, uh, this is another Rob Bowman episode. Rob Bowman, he was a young whippersnapper that uh, came into the show and it was sort of a a Rick Berman hire, brought him in. And Berman, uh, I mean, uh, Rob Bowman does a lot of really interesting things. He, we had the 10 forward set, which was new to the second season. And Rob Bowman told me that he goes, you know, I just want to do something weird when when Q shows up. So he put Q, he has him sitting on the, on ledge. the, on the yeah. ledge, you know, in the, in the windows of, of 10 yeah. forward. And there's a lot of, when the, the Borg are introduced, there's a lot of really weird creepiness in there. Mm-hmm. And the fact that when they find the Borg baby, I remember thinking, wow, ooh, like. In a they, drawer. They in kidnapped drawer. someone's baby and Borgified <laughs> yeah, yeah. the baby. You know, which which I thought was like that's a nice touch. I mean, they're clearly not pulling any punches. So funny when I was on on Castle, diapers. I I would go up. To, uh, the first thing I ever said to Rob Bowman was like, "Dude, I love Q Who." It's like we were like in a meeting, like a production meeting for something, and I was like, "But Q Who?" Let's. He said, "Oh yeah, that was great. I, that was so much fun. That was such great." I said, oh, I know. I mean, I was like, can we like talk about Castle and stuff? Talking oh, about Star Trek goodness. now. Um, no, but, it, was, it was also an episode I think that was good for Q. Because it made Q, he was kind of a smug, schmarmy bastard in uh, an encounter at Farpoint and mm-hmm. in whatever the hell game next. Uh, hide and Q, hide and Q. Yes, hide right. and Q, which Jim is Lord. terrible, but also has some great stuff in it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, macro head with a micro brain. Ha, right. ha, ha, eat any good books lately? Um, but I thought, you know, Q sort of came into his own as a character in this episode. 
because he really was trying to teach us a lesson. Right. And what he had to say about the universe, that it was filled with wonders and terrors that would chill the soul. I just, wow, my God, that's amazing. Because he is telling us, look, Star Trek matters. Right. But you need to be prepared. And in fact, if that episode were made today, the title of the episode would be Wonders and Terrors to Chill the Soul. Yes. Although, (laughs) depending on what era it could have been, it might have been um, The Snap. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that would have been, been the Voyager episode. episode. <laughs> if it had been original episode, it was serious. Uh, I, I have to say, I, I pretty much said everything I wanted to say about Q-Who when we did our Borg episode, so uh, I will accuse myself. Well, fine. You I will love cu- that. You will accuse yourself. I, I love... <laughs> I lo- look, I love Q-Who. I, I think that really, you know, that episode should have ended because there was no way they were ever going to be able to defeat the Borg. You know, not that you could have just said we're never going to see the Borg again because... After that episode, there's no way we could ever defeat them. Right. Like, we should have never been able to beat the Borg. And in my opinion, the next time we see them, they are diminished because we are able to. Well, and, it's, and, and they them. continue to be diminished. Yeah. yeah, they're great Borg episodes after that, but uh, they've created such a th- threat. I mean, it is Thanos in a way. I mean, it's like, yeah. how do you overcome that? And you have to because it's a TV series, but, um, y- you know, it, they barely escape, you know, in, right. in that. And, and, and should there's no way that they will ever be able to defeat no the way no way <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to number 17 i love this is sins of the father a third season a tremendous tremendous ron moore penned third season episode that pretty much cemented the modern klingon uh arc if you want to call it that or klingon dominance over next generation and deep space nine this is the episode where, where first we meet a Klingon exchange officer, uh, Kern. Kern? Kern. Kern. Yep. Uh, played by Tony Todd, the great Tony Todd, uh, who's a full-blooded Klingon and is acting completely disdainfully towards Worf. And I remember watching this episode not really knowing what it was about at first, and it's so great because he just belittles Worf at every moment. And you think, as a viewer, the first time you watch this episode, that it really is because... This Klingon is looking down his nose at this other Klingon that's joined the Federation. And it turns out, shockingly, that it's his half-brother. Um, it's his half-brother. And, and then that leads to the fact, into this incredible uh, storyline about you meet the Klingon High Council, we go to the Klingon homeworld, and we find out that Worf's family is being discredited by the Duras family. And there's all this Klingon intrigue we've never seen before. We get to see the Klingon High Council Chambers, incredible production design. We get matte paintings we've never seen before. I mean, it's amazing. And it starts a, a Shakespearean epic that plays out through the next couple of years of Next Generation, all about the the inner machinations of, of how the Klingon Empire works. And we find out there's not as much honor there as we might have thought. And we get John Tesh as a Klingon. It's just that's a, that's in a different episode. What? That's is not matter of honor with John Tesh as a Klingon giving. Oh, up. was it matter of honor or was oh, it reunion? Know. No, it was. Uh, yeah, it was. Maybe it was matter. I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know. All but, I know is that nobody knows who John Tesh is anymore. They don't. Like, I mean, not if we were showing Free Enterprise, nobody would laugh at that joke. He's nope. laughing in the movie back uh, back in the yeah. day. Now nobody would laugh. But Sins of the Father is is it's next generation firing on all cylinders, and the end of the episode is truly a heart-wrenching moment if you have become a war fan by this time and, and what he must endure and what he must take on. Endure us? His shoulders. <laughs> yes. yes. His shoulders. Um, his big, burly shoulders. 
you know, it, it's just oh, Shakespearean. It's it's great. Yeah. I mean, you know, Ron Moore, uh, you know, just hit these things out of the park. I mean, Reunion was a great episode. Men are honored. I, you know, re, look, the two parter we talked about. Redemption is not uh, not as good. Uh, you know, the resolution of the arc, but uh, since the father is is it's a really is, good setup. It's a great setup. Yeah. You it know, was kind of brilliant about it as a piece of episodic television writing is remember this was a time before suddenly Star Trek was doing lots and lots of continuity and, and arguably it, it might have been sort of the beginnings of, of something that was like continuity but you know everything that happens to Worf feels like it happens emotionally and it's important but because we don't live on the Klingon homeworld because we are out boldly going um, in the next episode we don't have to talk about it we just have to feel as the audience that this thing happened and now we see Worf in this totally different way. But the, the writers don't necessarily have to be responsible for it, which is not a criticism. It's right. actually just it's sincere admiration mm. uh, you know, <laughs> of, of, of what it was that of the choices that they made that within um, the limitations of how um, they were essentially they had essentially decided to tell these stories that they told the story that had epic sweep and scope and consequences um, that also allowed them to leave it a little bit in the in the rearview mirror and come back to it if they wanted to. And, and boy, did they want to. And a great matte painting. And, uh, you know, it also, it, it's very similar to the arc in Amok Time where uh, Kirk has to stand up for Spock and mm -hmm. it really cements that friendship. In a way, the fact that Worf has Picard as his stand up for him right. you know it, it cements an unlikely friendship there between Worf and, and Picard and it's 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 a wonderful moment and, and it's a good episode for Picard he comes across strong mm -hmm. and, and loyal and, and uh, does a lot for him as, as a powerful captain a really uh, wonderful episode and uh, number 16 uh, I, I, you know look what more can you say about uh, this wonderful Deep Space Nine confection prepare for an unforgettable hour of television God, that's him Oh, Kirk. An historic encounter between two legendary crews. He's so much more handsome in person. Together in one of Star Trek's most beloved adventures. They are detestable creatures. This. Celebrate an extraordinary event you'll have to see to believe. Too much fun. Next time on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Trials and tribulations. It's a... Homage to a loving the, tribute, a loving tribute to 25 years of Star Trek at the time. Uh, it's technically masterful in the way it incorporates original series footage, the way it recreates old sets, uh, how it, um, uh, you know, it just, uh, you know, look, it, it is a, a flawless episode with one flaw. And of course, I think we all know what that is. The missing Gerald Freed music in the bar fight. Indeed. You know, it, it, it shows you starkly the difference between the, the styles. The styles yeah. of the two shows. And that episode just dies for, for about a minute uh, when, it, when, it, when, when it's they playing have the, bar fight. the bar fight and the yeah. music's not there. And it's this droning Deep Space Nine, you know, wallpaper, oral wallpaper. And uh, it's really unfortunate because that's the one misstep of an otherwise perfect. delightful and perfect episode that not only pays tribute to the strength of the original series, but pays tribute to the strength of Deep Space Nine as well. And also the continuity. I mean, when you see Greg Jean built a K-7 space station model and a brand new screen-used six-foot model of the original Enterprise. Mm -hmm. And when you see the original Enterprise show up, I mean, it was breathtaking. It fit right in. It looked like it belonged to the universe. 
And it, it was just, I remember watching that the first time and just thinking, wow, you know, it was really a great, it, a great anniversary moment. You know, a quarter century of Star Trek, and they did such a wonderful job. And I, I think we ought to give a special shout out to Greg Jean because mm. not only did he do these, uh, you know, and his crew do these great miniatures of, you know, the previous uh, TOS stuff, he basically threw in a Klingon ship for free mm-hmm. because he wanted to see it in the show. Yeah. And because he loves it so much. And, you know, it, it, it looks great. The whole episode just is a warm uh, journey home for a few minutes. And it's, it's so much fun. It's what? almost like the 80th episode of the original series. Sure. It is. And it feels like an episode of the original series. When this episode aired, it was an event mm-hmm. at my oh, house. Oh, yeah. Um, I, you know, two of my best friends from college who were enormous Trekkies, we used to do, like, uh, you know, um, whiskey and Star Trek weekends where we would just get drunker and drunker and watch all the Star Trek movies. They came up. Um, I had just gotten married. My wife cleared out of the apartment out of fear. (laughs) (laughs) We watched that episode. We just drank like idiots. And we watched it again, drank like idiots. When she came home around midnight, she found us. We were all unconscious. One of my friends was on the floor. I was sitting there. I had a beer in my hand that was slowly pouring out onto his forehead, and the episode was still playing. Um, that's how much we loved that episode. I loved it so much I didn't remember watching it. <laughs> my God. Your wife is a good lady. She is. Oh, we were in so much trouble, though. Oh, my God. Oh, the rage. Trouble about Triple H? Was, that was the first time she went, oh, shit, that's what I married. Oh, God. Is it too late to get out of this? <laughs> exactly. What have you done to my house? Let's go to number 15. Uh, one of the most wonderful episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. Again, a second season episode, The Measure of a Man. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. It's unjustified. It's unfair. He has rights. A Starfleet experiment threatens to dismantle data for android research. And what's at stake? My very life. No, Captain Picard is data's last hope for survival. What is he? A machine. And now a man will shut it off. Objection. On Star Trek, The Next Generation. Uh, And in this episode, Data has been declared basically property by Starfleet. He's he's no longer a a sentient being in charge of his own disposition, and he's been given to Maddox, a a scientist who's been studying uh, robotics and uh, androidotics, or whatever you want to call it. (laughs) And, uh, and it's a discipline it, at Harvard. It, it starts. <laughs> it starts a uh, a courtroom drama essentially uh, between Riker has to go up against Picard and and Data's disposition, whether he is a person or a creature or a sentient being, hangs in the balance. And there is it, it, it is Star Trek at its finest. Um, it has a great moment between Picard. And Guinan, where Guinan talks about, oh, there's you could make a whole race of datas who could be in servitude to you. How's that going to work out? And, and there's a great um, relationship you you find a la the original series, um, a, a female character, also a lawyer, who who Picard has to also deal with, who was from his past, and you got an idea that maybe they were they were once uh, once involved. She actually slept with Kirk. 
but yeah, right. <laughs> but he this, knew her too. This episode was written by Melinda <laughs> Snodgrass, uh, the the great Melinda Snodgrass, who's come on board uh, to be a writer, to be on the writing staff in the second season. And what's interesting about this episode for you fans out there is Mike and Denise Akuda gave Melinda Snodgrass a VHS copy of this episode, which was running long. The original cut was 15 minutes longer than what aired on TV. For 25 years, she had this VHS videotape. She kept it. And when we were doing the uh, high-definition remasters of Next Generation, they were going to take her videotape and put it on the disc. And Roger Lay Jr. and I, who we'd gone to New York to interview Patrick Stewart, and we were talking to Ken Ross, who was in charge of the restoration, and we are talking about putting this on there. And I said, I said to him, I said, Ken, in his office, you know, we've got the negative. Why don't we just make the extended version of the episode? And he looked at me like, this was a revelation. I go, how hard can it be? There was three small effect shots that they had to, to fix. And that episode, The Measure of a Man, the extended version, the only extended version of, of Star Trek episode, had its debut in 1,200 movie theaters across North America as part of a, of a Fathom event. And it's just, it's a wonderful episode of Star Trek. No, it's Trek. so fantastic. It's yeah. another reason why... Uh, you know, you should get out there and buy those Blu-rays that Rob and Roger did. You know, I know a lot of you say, oh, well, it's streaming on CBS All Access and it's streaming on, you know, Netflix and it's streaming on Amazon. And that's all true. But uh, there's such a, a bountiful wealth of special features. Uh, again, it's worth having them uh, for archival purposes because yeah. you never know with streaming when they're going to go away. And uh, the restoration work they did is just magnificent. And uh, it is. And plus, if you ever want to see any more Star Trek shows released, mm-hmm. it couldn't hurt to buy the stuff that's out there. Yeah. And that extended version is not part of the syndication package. Right. Correct. Exactly. Well, so, that was the point. Yeah, there. it's yeah. not out there. Yeah. So, so you know, those are. You know, it's really worth owning, especially this holiday season. You can get them. You know, extremely inexpensively. You know, they're often discounted, and uh, the, you will not regret it. Uh, they look and sound amazing, and there's so many great commentaries and special features that they worked endless amount of hours on, and they're all wonderful. There's a, a scene also in the extended version where Kirk, uh, Kirk, Picard, and Riker <laughs> fence. Picard. They fence. Mm. There's a fencing scene. It's really cool. Yeah, it's it's a really terrific episode. You know, it's not just about you know. Um, that classic idea of, you know, what is a sentience, but also it could apply to a lot of debates like we're having right now about animal rights and animal testing mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, which is something I and feel really strongly cars. about. Um, and, 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 well, yeah, it's driverless cars, sure-winded driverless <laughs> cars. My mother, the car, is she sentient? I don't know. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think it's such a valuable debate. And as the best Star Trek often episodes often do, they remain relevant many years after they're made. And uh, this is certainly one that, that is as um, uh, powerful today. And, of course, what is it that gets data off? And you know, <laughs> I know, beg your pardon? I mean, Tasha Yar. I mean, it's <laughs> the fact catch, that, you yes. know, he He's slapped with Tasha Yar, right? which at the time was quite a racy and, 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 and what a great way to exonerate data and show that he is sentient and yeah, uh, really and he can be turned off he can be turned on and that's what saves his life that's right it. yes and there's also so. got one of the great patrick stewart performances and one of his great speeches and he, he, <laughs> there it he seems a, there, you know, waiting. reasonably life, aware to me commander so good <laughs> <laughs> there it, the gesture yeah it's it's great i don't know you. do you 
And it's so funny because, you know, sort of these 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 little uh, things become, you know, accepted truths like, oh, the first two seasons of Next Generation are awful, are worthless. And, you know, all these things. This third season of Star Trek is unwatchable, you know, and it's all wrong. You know, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like you know, the first season and, and second season are uneven, but there are some great episodes, and arguably take greater risks in those first two episodes than they ever did again, because you know they aspire for you know do some really wackadoodle stuff, and some of it really pays off, and some of it doesn't, but it's audacious. One of the this is one of the great episodes of Star Trek. Period. Yeah. And now another great episode of Star Trek. And another period. audacious episode. Another audacious one. Number 14, Arena, from the original series. Uh, this is the one with the Gorn, folks. The one that everyone sees on uh, on the internet, and you know everyone has their stuffed Gorn now. Well, believe me, back in the day, the Gorn was scary. And it was like no other alien we'd ever seen. And we didn't think of it as a guy in a suit. We thought of it as a competing commander who had uh, attacked an outpost of the Federation, and he was an enemy to be stopped, or so we thought. And in broad daylight. In broad daylight. It, audacious yeah. to put a man in a suit like this in a broad, in broad daylight. The Outer Limits always hid their monsters it's, and shadow. It's a great teaser. We see Ugh. we see Kirk and McCoy and a couple other guys preparing to beam down for dinner to for dinner <laughs> for dinner to Commodore Travers who sets a good table apparently uh, or who did um, <laughs> and they uh, they you know they're they're looking forward to this sumptuous meal and they beam down sumptuous. and we pull out sumptuous. and they are in the midst of ruins and Kirk whips out the communicator and says Red Alert Cestus Three has been destroyed. Holy cow. Now that's a teaser. That's a teaser. Going into a full-scale outdoor set yeah. with explosions, you know, going off. I mean, it's incredible what they pulled off at the beginning of this episode. And apparently uh, Shatner says this is where his tinnitus started. Yes, he does say that's really? where his tinnitus yeah. started. He said Leonard Nimoy had it too from that, from yeah. that explosion. Um, yeah, because the explosions on, uh, on Arena, they were so close to the explosions yeah. that it caused permanent ear damage. Wow. But um, for all that, um, it... It, uh, they, all that and more. All that and 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 more. <laughs> they, they, they chase they chase the uh, the alien ship uh, across space after they uh, after they find out that the station has been uh, attacked, and they are suddenly stopped dead in space by an unknown force. And Kirk and the commander of the Gorn ship are brought down to this planetoid where they are to fight to the death to decide their fate. And the thought bubble over Kurt's head reads, how many goddamn impotent freaking aliens are there in the universe? Yeah, yeah. And quite, then Led Zeppelin starts few. playing. Right. right. No, okay. Quite a few, apparently. Quite a few. Um, but uh, this was, uh, of course, written by Gene Kuhn, who later realized that he might have read it in a story, a short story by Frederick Pohl. That's actually Frederick Brown. a different story than I've heard. Frederick Brown, yes. That, yeah. that he actually wrote it, and then it was brought to his attention that was very similar to a short story by Freddie. So they optioned the story just to be safe. To yes, play. no. That, Gene claims he had no, it had no influence. He never heard of it. Never knew anything about it. Well, I'm sure that that's what he thought. Okay, <laughs> we can agree to disagree. <laughs> but yeah, yes, Fre Frederick Brown, um, and uh, it is it is 
you know, the quintessential Star Trek. When you when when outworlders think of Star Trek, this is what they think about. Yeah, aliens fighting. Yeah, and then at the end, a, a message. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the, the idea that the aliens appear as this, you know. Uh, young boy, young. You're just a, you're just a child. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just it, the form, which and and basically that this is a, and that humanity has proved its worth by right. sparing right. the, you know, it's happened again and again. But uh, this was the first time they really did it. This is the it, purest form, of and it. probably the best they ever yeah. did it. And of course, it cemented Vasquez Rocks as right. the iconic alien location that would be seen many, many more times and parodied many times right. in the future, including. By Rob and myself in Free Enterprise. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things when I was a kid, this episode, I I developed the same bloodlust Captain Kirk might have had when he watched it. When I I watched this episode, I wanted to kill the Gorn. I, I was like, so you found kill him, him. you know, you you really want him to die. Yeah, and as yeah. a kid, you're like, and then in the middle of it all, right when Kirk is going to deliver the, the 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 just decisive blow and take this man out, take the Gorn out, he stops himself, and he's like. Maybe Wait a thought, minute. Yeah, he stopped. Maybe even at the moment of death, Kirk stops and goes, "You know what? Maybe you guys would. Maybe you're right. Maybe we encroached on your space." And he made he taught me an important lesson as a kid that there's two sides to every story, and you shouldn't forget that. And and it's worth exploring before you decide to kill somebody. <laughs> hey kids, why don't we look in before you decide to kill? Uh, look into the other side. Look into why people are doing what they're doing. And there needs to be especially more of that nowadays, I think. Yes, for sure. Uh, maybe not when it comes to killing, but maybe how it comes to we see eye to eye about how we're going to run our neighborhood watch programs. I don't know. Right. But it, I, it, this episode had a real impact on me as a kid because every time I saw it, I remember getting up and and then at the end going, oh, wow, how interesting. Well, the, but, the part that, um, that I always think about this episode is it's that – but also, it's Spock, you know, watching Captain Kirk yeah. on the planet, and as Kirk mm -hmm. is assembling his weapon, mm -hmm. and he's just being smart, yeah. and everything mm -hmm. that he's doing feels like, wow, that makes sense, and it's just the ingenuity of it, and I just, I love the process, and, and of that. it's great seeing Spock's reaction. He's so impressed. He, he's yes. he's yes. impressed with Captain Kirk yes. that that he's you know he's almost as smart as Spock is. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. That's exactly what I was going to say. I love the fact that even without Spock, you know, Kirk's not just the jingoistic yeah. Lothario playboy. He's not. He's just. also freaking smart. Yeah. He realizes it's gunpowder. He puts this together. Yeah. I mean, if he there's a reason the he's time. captain of the Enterprise. Yes. Yeah. If he has the time. And it, it's funny because Spock almost gets emotional. Yes. Because yeah. he's talking to himself. Spock is actually talking to right. himself. You know, and then he realizes people are looking at him. He's reasoned it out. He knows, <laughs> Doctor. He knows. He knows. <laughs> it's so a, great. It's a, a, a great moment in an episode full of great moments. Yes, for sure. Number 13, Ashley. Number 13 is uh, one of my very, very favorite, appropriately, very, very favorite Star Trek episodes of all time, um, regardless of uh, of what series we're talking about. Um, and that is Balance of Terror. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, dun, <laughs> oh, dun, dun. dun. <laughs> uh, you know, it. it's interesting. It. It's really, it's not, it's a great- By the way, that's the Enterprise incident. Yeah. Just saying. It's dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah. It's wrong. It's, it's okay. Yeah. Fine. Fine. Oh my God. Fine. Canonista. <laughs> well, forget, you know what, forget this episode. Go, What's go, next? Go ahead. So, what I love about this episode is, look, it's it's a great space battle episode, and I and I love all of that shit, and I I eat <laughs> it up. 
but what I love most about it is what this episode says about Kirk and the journey that he goes on. The episode begins with a wedding. Yeah. You know, this episode begins with joy. It begins with with Kirk bringing these two people together in happiness, and then everything just goes straight to hell. Yeah. You know that that the groom is killed. Um, you know that it's just it's this very sad, uh, you know, upsetting moment. R.I.P. That, that it it takes him. It, it makes everything that happens afterward feel like it has emotional import, yeah. so that we understand when he's when he is has this moment with Doctor McCoy as they're battling the, the Romulans, and it's it is a submarine battle, so yeah. there's lots of time and waiting and suspense, um, and he is he's in a funk. What man. if I'm he's wrong? Like, what if he's yeah. wrong? Yeah, he's he's like Achilles in his tent, and mm. you know Doctor McCoy comes in, and they have like one of my favorite Star Trek exchanges ever. You know. Um, and uh, and Kirk is trying to wrap his head around the loss. He is trying to wrap his head around, um, you know, what these people are are going through. You know, uh, his responsibility as a captain, the fact that he could lose more. Um, you know, the does he have it in him to defeat the Romulans? It's like the John Hoyt Jeff Hunter thing in the cage, right. but better. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and Doctor McCoy has the great speech. Um, you know, about all like perhaps the, the greatest Dr. McCoy speech of all time, of all time, you know, of all like and I and I don't have the speech memorized. I bet Darren does. I'm not going to go there. This He's is your go, this, this is, is your this time is to thing, shine. But, so uh, the, the gist of the speech is how many stars there are in the sky um, and how, you know, in all of that, there is only one of each of us. And he says, don't destroy the one named Kirk. Yeah. And it's just and it's perfect and it's beautiful. And and the other thing that's great about it is that we see the other side. Um, we see Mark right. Leonard as the as the uh, Romulan commander. Right. And that he struggles with many of these things. He's a he's a sorcerer, that Earth captain. Um, and he's just great. You feel yeah. like you're watching two sides of, of, of something rather than just you're just kind of watching a fight. Right. Where's the Deep Space Nine that was on the table? It's right, right behind your Oh. But uh, you know something else to speak to that to speak to your point. I love the fact that Mark Leonard, uh, in in the flip side, he's kind of being mirror the mirror of what Kirk's going through. Yeah, he's not questioning. Uh, uh, he's doing his duty. Like he's not he's not going right. why me. And he's, he's not happy about it either. No, right? he's not happy about it either. He's and he, he's orders. doing yeah. it. He, but he's also doing what he has to do, and and he's he's just he's doing it methodically. But he's the one going. But must we? Must it always be right. so? Like, yeah. like a, I'm doing my duty. Why me? It's me because I'm doing my duty. Right. But, it, but he's questioning those a orders. gift yeah, to our yeah, praetor. Yeah, another yeah, war. Yeah, my grip to the homeland. Put the war. century in the, the tube. Uh, I mean, it's so. It yeah, that's another moment. His best friend's dead, but he's like, well, he's meat now, so I'm yeah. going to throw him out with the garbage so yeah. I can to make escape. it look like they're dead bodies, like we've right. been destroyed. It's very Kirkian. It, it is. is. Again, you know, that's, what's so, that's what's so great. They're yeah. both really smart. That's what's great. Yeah. It, 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 look, it's so great. Um, you know, that teaser. I, the fact, that you, and you talk about it, that this episode bookends with a wedding and a funeral. Yeah. I mean, how great is that? And that teaser is so great when they're in the middle of the wedding and he's getting the messages from the bridge. Yeah. And then, you know, the outpost has been attacked. You're going visual now, Hanson. And the plasma weapon and the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, man. It's the first it's time such we've... a great, you know, battle, space battle yeah. episode, but with so much heart 
and character moments. What was great, too, first of all, the, the design of the Romulan ship. It's the first time we've seen the Romulans. The reveal. And the last time. And the last time. <laughs> the reveal. <laughs> the Romulan bird of prey. That's great. The reveal that, that the, the Romulans are an offshoot of Vulcans, which is it's, establishing. It's awesome. Uh, yeah. Incredible. But but even now, I, I, I still get chills when the when the Romulans fire, mm-hmm. you know, when they fire that plasma weapon, and it's it's not fast. Yeah. It's slowly coming at you, even though it's coming at It's a walking zombie. Oh, it's so great. It's just so, oh, it gives me chills. It gives me chills. There, there are definitely a lot of scenes that give me chills. There's some Mark Leonard stuff, the, 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 the Shatner stuff. And then, you know, of course, look, it's a little ham-fisted, the whole prejudice thing where he's prejudiced against Vulcans mm-hmm. because Romulans killed his father in the war. Right. But um, it's still great when Spock has to save the guy yeah. Who's prejudiced against him? It's like those doctors after the shooting at the synagogue yep. who had to save the racist, uh, you know, shooter. You know, which I mean, better better than I because you know we fucking let him die. You know, or it's like let them wh- die. You know, it's like it's it, it's it's that Shatner in Star Trek Six. You know, and uh, and and you know, it, 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 you know, the better angels of our nature. I mean, it's it, it's amazing. You know, and Spock pulls him out. Uh, you know, after all he's done is razz him the whole. Time. It's, it's 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 such a wonderful episode, and it's such a great message episode. Without it being, you know, completely heavy. Leave any prejudice in your cabin. There's, there's no room for it here. No room for it here. Yeah. And it's truly exciting. Like it's it might be slow paced at certain mo- moments, but you're on the edge of your seat the whole time, right? Yeah, totally. What a, what a great episode, Ashley. You're absolutely right. And then that brings us to number twelve, which is a next generation classic. Uh, it's an episode called Family. Next time on Star Trek: The Next Generation. Picard faces his most difficult mission, the long journey home. I seem to have made a rather disturbing discovery. A family reunion takes a twisted turn. What the devil happened to you up there? Turning brothers into bitter rivals. I even enjoy bullying you. A tragic homecoming on Star Trek The Next Generation. And family may be the most atypical episode of uh, any of the uh, or off-concept episodes of any of the episodes we'll look at on this list, or certainly of any of the next generation. It takes place in the wake of the uh, Best of Both Worlds, mm-hmm. uh, Best of Both Worlds uh, two-parter, and while that was epic and and, and and broad in its scope, this is intimate and, and small. Basically, Picard goes back home after his quote-unquote rape by the Borg right. and is uh, reconnects with his estranged brother. Um, and he uh, deals with the implication. And this is long before serialized television. This is, this is a rarity. This was directly relating to the episode right. that preceded it, which was extraordinary. It was an episode that didn't have, was almost an orphan because Michael Piller and Ron Moore were really championing it when nobody else wanted to do it. They wanted a ridiculous B story that was some kind of temporal thing or something, some sci-fi element, because they didn't feel people came to Star Trek to watch family drama. And yet it is one of the most powerful Absolutely. and potent uh, episodes uh, in the history of Star Trek, uh, brilliantly written. Uh, Jeremy Brett, I think it was. Is yep. the brother? Uh, no. Uh, who? Who? who no, no. It's it's, it's not. It's, it's not, not Jeremy it's, Brett. It's, it's no. Uh, it's um, yeah. who plays the brother? Whoever he is, because he played a, a, many Nazis in his career. Indeed, I, I think he was in Winds of War. Rob is a Nazi. The the brother in uh, in Family. I there think, was a oh, yes, yes, I think yes. Brett is right, but the first name is different. You know what? Let's go to the videotape. Let's see what IMDb says. <laughs> oh, it's it's. Uh, what was um, his name? Come on. I want to say Jeremy. We're taking it's, it back. It's Jeremy uh, Kemp. Jeremy, Jeremy Kemp. Kemp. Jeremy Kemp. There Jeremy you go. Jeremy Kemp. Play, yeah, and he is 
wonderful. It's another reason that, you know, as you people know, I hate generations because partially by killing off Picard's family, it negated yeah, all of that, family. all yeah. of it. You know, the, the warmth and the, 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 this, this wonderful, wonderful, again, wonderful location shooting yeah. out on the in the vineyards in, in Malibu. The fight. Um, and the, uh, the fight in the mud, which, was, which awesome. was this cathartic moment for Captain Picard. It's just a very special off-brand yeah. uh, uh, episode, and I just, I think it's among the best. And again, you know, one of the, the themes for me on, on these episodes tends to be a lot of location shooting. We're right. not on the ship. You know, we're down on the planet. It felt very real and gritty and, and, and honest. There's also a great Wesley subplot, plot, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, and uh, yeah, the, 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 and there is, we're coming to terms with his father, yep. um, which is interesting. Good use of the holodeck. Yep. It's no malfunction. It's just a chance to conjure up uh, the, you know, his father. Yeah, to talk to the ghost. To yes. talk to the ghost yeah. of his, his father. Really, really interesting. Um, and as we get down uh, to our top ten, uh, Ashley's going to close this out with the visitor, and, uh, and then uh, we will return next week with our top 10. So, Ashley, let's finish this episode with number, number 11. 11. Number 11 um, is a Deep Space Nine episode uh, that is, it kills me every time I watch it. Um, it's called The Visitor. A freak accident freezes Cisco in time. No! Don't leave me! Now his son begins a lifelong obsession. You're older than I am. To save his father. We're trying to rescue the gold Jake. But to bring him back to reality... They're being pulled into subspace. ...could take Jake his entire life. Jake, what's happened to you? On the next Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And it's very off-concept. Uh, it's, in a way, you could call it a time travel episode. It's, it's not really... It's an episode about the passage of time um, and what it does to us. And it's about um, sort of the choices that we make, sort of the things that we do for for love, but not in a Game of Thrones way. Um, And the premise of it is that much like in the Tholian web, uh, Commander Sisko is is basically trapped out of space and time. And Jake Sisko grows up obsessed, obsessed with bringing his father back. And there is nothing this boy will not do to get his father uh, back to him, to reclaim him, um, and he grows old. Uh, Tony Todd plays Jake Sisko as, as an adult, as an older man, and every time Sisko comes back, they have a scene, until finally, at the end, Sisko manages to convince him, you have to let me go, because what's happened here is, it's ruined your life, and you've put me in a place where I have taken everything from you, and as a father, as your father, like, I, I can't live with that. I can't. Mm-hmm. You have to let me go. And the moment that Tony Todd, as Jake Sisko, realizes that, it's just, it is wrenching. I, I defy you to watch that episode um, and and not shed at least one tear, um, both for Tony Todd's performance, um, for the beautiful, beautiful writing, um, and just how well-made it is, how simple and elemental. It's, I mean, it's, it's everything you know, a, a Star Trek episode should be with a great high concept that has an emotional consequence um, for our characters that we give a shit about. Yeah. And Tony Todd says to this day it's one of his favorite 
uh, performances that he's ever given, one of his favorite roles. And, of course, it was coming off his great role as uh, War's brother on, on Next Generation. Right. Uh, it just shows what a fine actor Tony Todd is. And, and you know, obviously people know him as Candyman, but uh, I won't say it three times. But he uh, he's just a wonderful uh, and a very emotional episode. And it's interesting that as we get down to, you know, the top ten, so many of these off-concept uh, you know, um, breaking the format of the shows, which they were so loath to do, are among our favorites. And you'll find out what our top 10, as we get to the top 10 episodes next week, as we finish our list of the top 10 greatest Star Trek episodes of all time. This has really been a fascinating journey through the history of Star Trek as we uh, hit virtually every series uh, and, and count down our, our list. So I look forward to having uh, you all back as we finish the, uh, uh, the top 10. I'm sure people will be anxious to find out. We're I know I am. Definitely interested. Will your favorites make the cut? Well, you'll find out in our next episode. But meanwhile, uh, you can follow Inglorious Trexperts on Twitter and Instagram and Inglorious Trek, as well as on Facebook, where you can continue the conversation by suggesting show topics or favorite episodes that you think didn't make the cut and are aggrieved about. Um, <laughs> give us You can give us our uh, feedback. In addition, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please rate us five stars at Apple Podcasts. Uh, it helps bring other people to the show, and we want to spread the gospel of Inglorious Trexperts. Uh, <laughs> you can hear uh, new episodes uh, every Sunday night, um, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. And, of course, if you're a fan of Star Trek Discovery, and who isn't, don't miss our new podcast, Disco Nights with host Chase Masterson and special guests every week. Uh, all new episodes premiere uh, every Thursday night, uh, and we hope you'll join Chase for, for that show. And uh, finally, a very special thanks to Bill Ritter and Natalie and everyone here at Electric Surgeon Network for making the show possible. We couldn't do it without you. Uh, I also want to wish everyone in our audience a, a very happy holidays and a happy new year. Uh, we hope you're having a great holiday season and that our uh, Top 50 countdown has helped uh, you enjoy the season that much more and hasn't made you want to kill yourself. Um, <laughs> Happy <laughs> so, holidays. <laughs> go watch. Forget Star Trek. Go watch uh, It's a Wonderful Life instead. Uh, if, Die if hard. you're feeling that you depressed. Like a cadet review. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, until next week, on, on behalf of Rob, Ashley, Darren, and myself, keep on trekking. Shh. Engage.